Well, Genesis House, let's stand and read the Word of God. We'll do Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. And we'll do Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 3. So Ephesians 4, 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Over to 5, verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper amongst the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we again come to you for guidance. We come to you for, for truth. And we come to you for understanding of how uh, we are to operate as Christians in this world. And today we're going to learn about a particular uh, topic of area which are really important, and that's how we speak, and the type of things that we say, and the kind of conversations we get into and words we use. So God, we uh, look forward to our time together. Pray for your spirit to guide me into truth and to uh, shape anybody's heart and mind in here that may not be exactly how you want them to think. You know everybody in here uh, far greater than I ever would, and so I just pray, Lord, that your word speaks to them now, and for myself as well. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. sermon, uh, we entered into a really good dialogue uh, in the discussion, and we ended up talking a bit about swearing, and where does swearing fit into the Christian life? Does it fit in, what, if you know, at all, and all these kind of back and forth conversations. So I thought it would be appropriate then to take one more week away from John to discuss this wonderful topic of area of our Christian life, <laughs> this idea of swearing. Uh, it's a topic we've never spoken about before in the church. At least in my recollection, we've never spoken about it in small groups, either in the women's or men's that I'm aware of. And uh, I know we've never spoken about it on Sunday mornings nor on the houseboat. So my, it's a really important uh, thing we should discuss. And I'm guessing that depending on who you've spoken to within the Christian community, you're going to get a lot of different perspectives on this issue. Um, some words people would say are unanimous. You can't say those at all. And other words would say, well, they're, they're more ambiguous and whatnot. So, because it's an important issue, I wanted to walk through it biblically with you, uh, so that we know as Christians what God's expectations are of us in terms of the language we use. It's especially important for those of us, those of us in the parenting stage. Because your kids are going to come to you one day and say, and say something that you don't want them to say. And you're, and, and you're going to say, we don't say that in our family. And their next question was going to be, why? So you better have a darn good answer for why, and uh, not just make something up out of your own head, <laughs> okay? And so I want to give you like a, some biblical passages on how to work this through. Now, 
I'll give you a little caveat uh, here, though. Uh, this is whenever you do a topical sermon, it's a bit scary because when you when you do a topical sermon, you're saying that you're an expert in this area, and that and that, that opens up the entire Bible for someone to use to say, "What about this verse? What about that verse?" So I I do have to say this. Um, I do have more work to in this area in my own understanding to learn. Um, I had one week of preparation, so I har- hardly call myself an expert in this area after one week. Nobody's an expert in any area of life after one week. However, I'm not unprepared either, and I think the texts that we have today are of extreme value to us as a church. So even though we read Ephesians 4, uh, 29 is the first verse, I'm actually going to start with you in the Old Testament, in Exodus, verse 20, Exodus, verse 20. Sorry, verse 20, chapter 20, and verse 7. So I'm just going to find it here. We're going to do an Old Testament understanding of this and a New Testament understanding of this. So Exodus 20, verse 7. This is what uh, God told Moses to say to the Israelites. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. When you and I approach this text as a North American New Testament Christian, we typically understand this commandment as a prohibition against using the God's name in a way that's like a curse word. Okay? So don't take the Lord's name in vain means don't say Jesus Christ after you stub your toe or say, oh my God, oh my God, when you like a new song or something like that. That's typically how we take these kind of verses. Now, while this understanding of taking the Lord's name in vain was also applicable to Israel in the Old Testament time, the truth is, is that the commandment was much deeper than that in implication. It was much deeper than that in implication. In our churches, it hasn't become that. But in Israel's time, it was much deeper in application. And I want you to understand the complexity of this. And, when we, and the first thing we have to do is understand what vain means. What does it mean to take the, death of the Lord's name in vain in the Hebrew word? The Hebrew word is shav, S-H-A-V. And it means empty, worthless, futile, or false. So for an Israelite to take the name of the Lord in vain... It was to use his name in an empty, worthless, false, futile way. Now, this would definitely include cursing, no doubt about it. Like using his name in the it just in an empty way, but like you know when they again hit their thumb with a hammer kind of thing. But it included other various forms of profanation. Now, I just learned that word this week, so I thought I'd share it with you because I thought it was really cool. That made me sound really smart. So, profanation. Included other forms of profanation. Profanation is simply this. It's an act of disrespect or irreverence towards something regarded as sacred. It's to disrespect or be irreverent towards something that is sacred. So it includes aspects of blasphemy, desecration, sacrilege, violation, so on. Now, here's how an Israelite could take the Lord's name in vain. Very interesting. You think of the definition of being disrespectful towards something as sacred. They could do it in this way. They could attribute God's name to an idol. So, you know what's exactly what happened at the golden calf. In the golden calf, in Exodus um, 32, verse 4, 
after they make the, they say, let's make us like, let's make us a God who will go before us, and they make the golden calf. This is what they say: This is your God who delivered you from Egypt. And then they made an altar and sacrificed it to the Lord. So the golden calf was unnamed, but they said, "This is about you, God. This is for you. This is you." Incredible. Because they, uh, they could have given them the name Baal or Molech. They didn't. They said, this is for the Lord. The golden calf was an idol to represent God. That's taking his name in vain. Treating him in an empty, worthless, uh, desecrated kind of way. This could occur um, in another way. Uh, you could take the Lord's name in, in, in oaths. Right? Uh, taking his name in vain in breaking oaths. Okay? So this is the kind of thing where you'd enter into an oath with someone to uphold your end of a deal. And then you'd swear in God's name that you would uphold your end of the bargain. And God said, if you ever swear in my name and break an oath, you're taking your name, my name in vain. Because you're saying, in the, in the holy name of God, I'm committing to this oath, and then you break it. So you're just basically treating God's name as empty and worthless because you weren't going to uphold your end of the bargain. Leviticus 19.12 completely forbid taking the name of the Lord's name, or the name of the Lord in a swearing way when it came to breaking oaths. Another one you could do as an Israelite was to make false prophetic declarations in the name of God. You'd attribute God's name to a lie. And this is one I want to particularly look at with you because I feel it's relevant in our church today. Uh, Quickly turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel 13. Page 1143. <laughs> Only two people have my Bible in the church. So. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter 13. Now, it's one verses 1 to 10, but we're not going to read 1 to 10. I'm going to give you the context and then give you the key words I care about. So in Ezekiel chapter 13, Israel, in context, is in, t- is in a terrible state. They're in a terrible place with God. They've been acting wickedly as God's people. And so God had sent Ezekiel to them to to act as his mouthpiece in order to warn them that unless they repented from their wicked ways, they were going to be judged and destroyed through Babylon. At the same time that Ezekiel is, is prophesying about the coming judgment through the nation, false prophets were also declaring a message, but and also in the name of God. So Ezekiel, in the name of God, is preaching judgment. These false prophets, in the name of God, were declaring a message of peace. Look at verse 10. He says, It is definitely because they, the false teachers, have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. So these guys were, you know, were just acting wickedly, uh, you know, sacrificing their children to idols, uh, you know, um, not, not obeying the Sabbath anymore, desecrating the temple, all these things. And these false prophets were going around to the nation saying, you guys are okay, keep going. God says you're okay, you're okay. Just keep on going your life. And Ezekiel's saying, no, the message of the Lord is destruction, judgment. Now what's interesting is what they're guilty of. It's a lie, but they're actually guilty of breaking the third commandment. They're guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain. The word shav occurs numerous times in verses 6 through 9. Look at this in verse 6. Okay, this is the, speaking of the teachers there. They see falsehood. That's the word shav. They see falsehood as <coughs> divination who are saying the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope for the fulfillment of the word. Did you not see a shav 
false vision and speak a lying divination when you said the Lord declares, but it's not I who have spoken. Therefore says the Lord, because you have spoken shav, falsehood, and seen a lie, therefore behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord. So my hand will also be against the prophets who see shav, empty, worthless visions and utter lying divinations, and so on and so forth. These men were taking the Lord's name in vain because they were declaring, God said, God said, God said, and he had nothing to do with it. That's a great implication in our church today. Isn't it? How many times have you heard someone come up to you or you've experienced this where God's told me to tell you something or God wants you to know something or I have a message from the Lord and the majority of the time it's not from God. It's coming out of their own mind, their own heart, their own inspiration. And people don't realize that in the traditional sense of the commandment, um, um, that taking the name of the Lord in vain then is not only cursing, but it's treating his name in a worthless and empty way. And the way people can do that is when they go up to you and say, the Lord says this, and it's not from them. It's a way of taking their name in the Lord of vain. That's incredible when you think about that. Because when pe- people, I think, in our culture never think when they make prophetic claims in the name of God, if they don't come true, they don't think of it as anything. Oh, that's too bad I got it wrong. But they don't ever understand it as being uh, sacrilegious or blasphemy or taking the name, his name in an empty, worthless way. And that's why we're very careful at least in our church about when people make declarations, well, God wants me to tell you this. So you have to be very sensitive to those issues and be well aware of it. Now, there's much more that can be said on that, but uh, I think we should move on. Now, I realize the purpose of the sermon was to understand swearing in our context in the traditional <coughs> sense, right? We, we want to look at it from that perspective. But I thought it was important that you understood the third commandment first in the Jewish context. You've got to know the Jewish, God's original context for what he was dealing with with taking the Lord's name in vain before we move it into our context in terms of this here and ours. So let's dive in then to the kind of language we should or shouldn't use as Christians. And we'll go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. <coughs> now let's just first off say that uh, the Lord's name in vain for us to take it in a cursing way is still off limits today. <laughs> Okay, And I think we know that. I don't have to teach you that you shouldn't use the name of Jesus Christ or God in, in any empty, worthless way in your own speech. Um, when Jesus even taught the disciples to pray, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Sacred be your name. Revered be your name. Blessed be your name. So using the name like, oh my God, in an empty, worthless way to express frustration or anger or surprise or using Jesus Christ is clearly not hallowing his name. So we know, but again, that's pretty obvious, I think, to us as Christians, that that's off, that's off line for us. But what about other words? And what about other types of language in, the, in terms of the traditional sense of swearing? Well, Paul helps us out here, starting in verse 29. Starting in verse 29. He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Verse 4 and chapter 5, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Now, it may not be obvious at first, but 
the first thing we have to consider in determining what constitutes the kind of language we can use as a believer is the context of the culture we live in. The context of the culture we live in. That's the first thing. You see, when a Paul tells a believer not to let any unwholesome word pr proceed from your mouth, or let there be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, that is going to be dependent culture to culture. That's going to be dependent culture to culture. Yes, some words are transcendent, like some phrases and thoughts are transcendent, I think, across uh, certain cultures, especially in the North American culture, westernized culture, but it's very much dependent on culture to culture. I'll, let me, let me uh, give you an example. Um, words and phrases that are definitely used in our culture may not apply to cross, culture, cross cultures as of what constitutes offensive language. Did you know the word root in Canada, to us, has no connotation of being a swear word, right? Root. Root. If you live in Australia, root has a sexual context. So if I said in Canada, what were you doing this weekend? Oh, I was just rooting around in my garage. <laughs> she's laughing because she's from Australia. <laughs> Maybe Laurel should give us the other Australian version of it. But I said, oh, what are you doing in Australia? I'm rooting around. Everyone would, nobody would laugh at you. They'd go, oh yeah. And you're like, yeah, it's just looking for stuff, like rummaging, you know, going from place to place, or, you know, that's how we think it. In Australia, rooting around is, means, is always in reference to the sexual context. Right? I'm being gentle because of the certain kids in the thing. But rooting around is to, you know, not look through your garage. <laughs> okay? All right? So, and I, I you, know, the, you know the company of Roots in the mall? With the, the Canadians had Roots sponsor them for the Olympics. When the Australians come to Canada, they go to that store and buy those hoodies like crazy. Because when they go back to their contacts and they wear them around, everyone laughs and thinks it's so funny. Because everyone's like, look at your shirt, look at your shirt. And we wear these proudest Canadians as an Olympic sponsor. Okay? Australians would never put roots on their front cover of their jerseys as an Olympic sponsor. Right? Okay, so you get the idea. We, uh, right off the cuff, what constitutes filthy or unwholesome talk or coarse jesting is very much cultural. If you were to be in Australia versus Canada, you would also never name your child Randy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you never name him Randy if you're British. <laughs> That's why we want to name it British as Walter or like Andrew. <laughs> okay, but what constitutes unwholesome and filthy talk is not only dependent on your culture, but the mini culture that you live in, the mini culture within your culture. Okay, I wish Pat was here. Pat and, and Laurel are perfect because they lived in Australia, but Pat's from Quebec. Anybody in here offended by the word tabernacle? No, not even close. They don't even know what it means, do you? Probably not, right? In French, that is the most offensive word you can say. That's worse than the F-bomb. You say tabernacle in French, that is the most vile way of expressing your... your, your, your yeah, if you want to get a point across, that's the most vile word you can use. So even within our Canadian context, tabernacle means nothing to use with Burton, but as a Quebecer, someone like from or Montreal or whatever, you, you understand exactly what that word means. Matt had a cool experience on Thursday. Uh, you know Jeff works with the Hutterite colonies, right? Jeff invited me to the Hutterite colonies, 
And uh, it was a really cool privilege because I got to see for about five, six hours what it was like on a colony. So uh, this one Hutterite colony takes me to a dairy farm, uh, the dairy section of their, their colony. And it's really cool. I mean, some of you have seen this. I hadn't. But you walk into this room and they, they're high technology now. They, they don't milk the cows with their hands anymore. They have these machines. And these Hutterites are high tech. And they take me into this, this uh, room. And I go there, and uh, I've never been sort of seen a lactating cow before. Like, they just squirt milk just like standing there because they're so ready to, to go, right? And uh, there's this machine, and they walk into this machine, and there's these three or four suction cups. And the cow stands there and knows where to go and stands there. And these suction cups are robots. They, they come up, and if they miss, like, the, the nipple, they come back down. And then they, once they find the nipple, they suck on, they, they grab on the nipple. And then, and then they, the other three mess, and they keep sensing until, they, and they grab all four nipples, and next thing you know, they're like milking the cow, and this is really cool. So in my head, I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking, uh, okay, like that's a big udder, <laughs> and those are like thick nipples. Like that's in my head. I'm thinking, holy cow, like I've never seen like nipples that big before. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> these, are, these are the things going through my head. And then Hutterite comes up to me, and he goes. Yeah, he goes like, like he talks about, and I, he's explaining them how the machine works, and he goes, yeah, like when the suction cup misses their tits. Like when they miss their tits, like that's, that's like, you know, they have to come back down and go back up again. And I, and I was preparing for my sermon, and I thought, this is awesome, because that word means nothing to him. He's German, he's Hunter, right? And, th and it's a true statement. That's a true statement. And they can use that word, no problem, because it did miss that part of the, the other, right? So I call it the nipple, he calls it something else. But if you, but if you were like uh, out of that context, and you were to speak about that word in our, in a, in, in certain circumstances, people would might take offense to that word, right? Because we don't use it in our culture, in our culture, in that way. So it was really cool. I thought this is a great experience for me, just because here I am preparing for this sermon, and then this happens to me with this exact word, and it's kind of neat. So it's an important step for us as believers in choosing the language that we do to understand that it's going to depend a lot too on the mini culture or culture that we're within. And so Paul's concern is this. We are to never use language that is, that is going to be, uh, that the other cultures are going to find offensive or they're going to be sensitive to in terms of the, the choice of language we use. Okay? The next thing we have to consider outside of culture is and this is kind of it's very similar to culture, is the thing that Paul cares about in terms of language we choose is the idea of being very sensitive to who the listener is. We have to be careful. What we choose to say is more about who's listening than anything. Look at verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. It's to give grace and edification to those who hear. It's all about the listener. Paul's concern is, what is your language like in terms of how it affects another person? How is it affecting those who are hearing what you're saying? And he says here, believers are only to use language that edifies people and provides grace to people. We see that in verse 29. Edification and providing grace are the key things. So what does it mean to edify someone? Well, you choose language that builds up somebody. You choose language that advances language that advances somebody, that strengthens someone, that encourages the person. We are to speak in a way that up, uplifts people and not tears them down. That's what edification means. And Jesus had a lot to say 
about language that tore people down. He had a lot to say about that. It's quite amazing, actually, in Matthew 5.21. I mean, look at this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone says, you fool, will be in danger of the fiery hell. Now, the word Raka means worthless. Worthless. You have no value. Again, context. Raka, anyone offended by the word Raka in here? Of course not. If you're a Jew, extremely offended. We're saying you're absolutely worthless. You're just a piece of crap, piece of junk, whatever. That's exact. We have phrases to accomplish the same thing in our culture. But Raka was a way of discrediting, devaluing somebody. Jesus gives us a new perspective on this because he's saying, listen, how you look at someone in terms of how you talk to them and the, way, the words you use in terms of like uh, edifying or tearing them down, if you tear someone down with that kind of language, it's equivalent to murder. Not in terms of like the absolute penalty in a court system, but in, in spiritual world, in the heavenly world of judgment, he will say, you know what, you never physically kill anybody, but you, are, you might as well have in terms of your heart because you treated someone with that much contempt that you basically murdered them with your words. And that's unbelievable when you think about that. And again, as parents, that's going to really help you think through your parenting. How many times when you, you, when you hear your, your, your kids, like between siblings, calling each other names, calling each other down and using like derogatory language, Jesus says, if that's a pattern that they adopt into their, into their adulthood and they don't, they don't smarten up and that that's equivalent to murder in his eyes. When you understand it that way, it really gives you a big picture of how we choose our words and how we think. So as I was preparing for this week, it really got me thinking then about the common words and phrases we often use as Christians that we substitute for swear words. Okay? Jeez. Jeez. Gosh. Friggin, friggin, right? Right? See, if the key to the language we choose to participate is largely dictated by the listener, right? Not what we deem is right or wrong, but what the listener thinks, maybe we would change the words we substitute. Right? Some of us, some of us will, uh, you know, like uh, mess up something like, uh, we're working on something and maybe it's like an arts or craft or it's like we're doing mechanics and we drop a screw, we're like, oh geez, oh geez, right? Or we get excited about something, like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, or oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And I, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm actually guilty of this when I've, I've been thinking about this more and more. But I've, I've especially you guys, I, I listened to our, some of our conversations this last week as we had them, um, uh, just out of curiosity, like, because I was with, I got to see a lot of you in the church this week, and I was just for fun paying attention to the language we both use to see if, like, how much we talked about. And a lot of us will say friggin' all the time, right? That's friggin' amazing, that's friggin' cool, that's friggin' awesome, right? It's friggin' true. <laughs> it's friggin' true. <laughs> right. Okay, so, <laughs> but if you think of what Paul says, we have to consider the listener to determine if that is offensive language or not. See, and if you're in the presence of me, where I'm at in my thinking and everything, I'm not offended by that language. However, if you were my, my grandparents' generation, oh my goodness, you might as well like, just excommunicate yourself from the family. Because if you said that in front of them, you would have been out, like gonzo, stoned, whatever, right? 
Again, because their era and their culture, and for them as a listener, that, that language was too close to the truth for them. I, I have to admit, though, for myself, like, oh my gosh, is like difficult for me to hear. That's like for me, like, I don't know what it is. Like, if we all have our idiosyncrasies, but oh my gosh, is too close to the truth for me. I can handle goodness more, but oh my gosh, is just like too close to the truth. But that's my own like thought process, and it may be for yours as well. So anyway, it's just something to think about, though, in terms of a language, because depending on who you're in front of, and, the, and the, depending on your listener, will, will then determine what kind of language you use. And so even though you might not think that friggin' and G's and these words are swear words, if you're offending the listener, that's an issue for Paul. That's an issue for Paul. So of course, he's talking here about the, the, the context within the Christian community. So what about outside the Christian community? I mean, if our culture widely accepts phrases, the, like in certain words, and the listener in our cultures would not be offended then by, by the language we choose. If it wasn't a list of offense, does that give us a green light then to say whatever we want in front of a non-believer? And I would say no. I'd say no. And I'll give you two substantiations, substantiations why. One from the world's point of view and one from the scripture today. Why wouldn't we have a green light as Christians to say no or, say, or to swear and speak in unfilthy ways in an unbelieving context, if they had no problem with it. Well, actually, I believe they do have a problem with it. I'll give you two examples of why. Did you know the world actually has standards for what's appropriate language? The world has standards. I happened, when I was a non-Christian, I, I used to like swear so much that when I go into certain non-Christian contexts, they would tell me, Andrew, like, you gotta tone it down. So I'd go into certain unbelieving contexts, and I was known as the one that swore too much. But even more so, um, I, my, 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 my tendency was to head down the more the silly, uh, like, um, what was it he says here, coarse jesting. Filthiness and coarse jesting. Coarse jesting means crude joking. So my, my, I love to be inappropriate in social contexts to create rouses out of people. I'm, su I'm sure that doesn't surprise you. <laughs> Those of you know that. So now I do it in a Christian way. <laughs> but anyway, so but they would say, Andrew, you crossed the line, you crossed the line. Why would they say that? Because they're like, we even recognize that we have standards within the non-Christian community that this has gone too far, right? But I'll suggest it this way too. Movie ratings tell you, the movie ratings that we have tell you that they, the world believes that there's a, a fine line. Why is a movie rated G, then PG, and then PG-13, then 14A, then 18A, and then R? Why do they do that? Because the movie industry is saying this, we recognize there are standards of language in which people uh, use that, that get increasingly offensive. And that's in certain material with uh, a, a core subject matter within the movies that uh, we want parents to be aware of with their kids and so on and so forth. So the world actually doesn't think these ratings are stupid. No one ever says, that's stupid, I think that's not 18A, that should be PG. The world's accepted these standards, and you know what? So have we. So have we. How many times have you looked at a, P, like a, a general movie and gone, oh, that's stupid, that should be rated R? You don't. You trust the world's system to say, I think my kids can watch this, and if it's PG, you think, okay, I should maybe watch this first to make sure my kids can watch it. So you actually, as a Christian, believe that the world's standards for judging what's right and wrong language-wise is appropriate for you to use as a measurement tool. <laughs> I mean, we, we do that. Okay, so 
So substantiation one, why don't we use language and have the green light to speak that way? Well, because the world expects that Christians are to have a higher standard than they do. They have standards within their speech uh, and what they expect to be true, but they also know if you claim to be a Christian that they will put you in a higher moral standard. So therefore, we are going to be expected by the non-Christian world to beat them in the context of moral language and the choices that we use. Even if you don't agree with what I just said and you want to fight me on that, that's fine. But I will say this, that God's standard from the scripture here does tell us that we have to be above reproach in the outside world. See, look at verse 29 again. He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. No. He didn't say, you know, there are times when you can let unwholesome words proceed from your mouth. He said, let no unwholesome words proceed from your mouth. Look at verse uh, 4. There must be no filthiness in silly talk or coarse jesting, but rather giving thanks. He doesn't say there can be coarse jesting sometimes, there can be silly talk sometimes. He's actually saying there's none. As a Christian, I want none of this kind of language to be part of your way of thinking and speaking. And here's the thing, guys. If we refrain from speaking these ways in unbelieving context and, and in the Christian context, we will never have to worry about being offensive to anyone. See, you don't always know what's offensive to a listener. You don't until you find out later. But if you just chose to never use those words, you'd never ever have to be an offense. No one in the Christian circle or the non-Christian circle will ever be offended if you refuse to use any of these kind of words or talk about anything that we associate with offline or socially unacceptable or like crossing the line with cursing. You'll never be an offense. And so therefore your testimony will always be intact. I do want to finish with one final point. And I think it's very profound. And I would call it the antidote for people who struggle with unwholesome speech. The antidote for people who have a hard time with speech. Okay? Look at verse, chapter 5, verse 4 again. Listen to this. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather, the rather, giving of thanks. Now I start thinking about this. Why would giving thanks be in, set up in opposition to coarse jesting and silly talk? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you know anybody who's extremely thankful in their life for, for, for the things that God's given them who are known for having a potty mouth? Do you, anybody you know that's completely thankful and has, got a, has a pattern of thankfulness have problem with language? How many people do you know that are embittered who are not thankful and feel like a victim in every area of life who are potty mouth. Isn't that interesting? I don't know a single person that I would consider a thankful person that struggles with language. But I do know tons of people that have a hard time with language that are very much, woe is me, and this world sucks, and blah, blah, blah. The giving, see, if you give thanks, if, you, if you're known for giving thanks, it's the antidote for having a, a, a person who wants to use these kind of words as a way of expressing yourself. And those of you who know who Paul Hegstrom is and, um, the, and the life skills course that uh, we sort of have used and promote in our church to, to some degree, um, Paul Hegstrom's mentor was Eldon Chalmers. So when, when Paul gives his life skills stuff and he talks about all the things that he's learned, he's not the inventor of this stuff. He was mentored by a guy, guy named Eldon Chalmers. And Eldon Chalmers was a pastor 
and a licensed psychologist. He had a PhD in psychology. He has a chapter in his book called How to Control Your Brain for Healing. How to Control Your Brain for Healing. And do you know what he said? And this lines up with the scripture. His experience in bringing healing to people who suffer with anxiety and other wounds, he says this, quote unquote, nothing tends more to promote health of a body and soul than does a spirit of gratitude and praise. <laughs> people who suffer from massive anxiety hardly are very thankful people. Usually embittered. Right? This is a licensed psychologist who's got a PhD who trains people in marriage counseling, dealing with victims of all sorts of things, who's a pastor of a church, who was Paul Hegstrom's mentor, and if you know, those of you who know Paul would know that's a big deal, says, this is his, 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 his like clinical uh, analysis of people. Nothing tends to promote health of a body and soul more than does a spirit of gratitude and praise. And that's why we, those of us in the flipping study, Paul says in chapter four, um, if you're anxious, don't be anxious for nothing, but with thanksgiving, let your request be known to be God. Right? Here's the thing. Thankfulness, like it's not a coincidence here, I think, that Paul says if you're known for this kind of language, the way to, the antidote, the cure for this is to be a thankful person. And when you're thankful, these kind of words and these ways of expressing yourself become less and less important by the way you speak. Very, I, I, this was a very good learning for me this week. You asked me about this last week, I would have not had that as an answer for you or as a thought for you. This is, this is something brilliant that the Lord's revealed to me in my own studies. Right? Let there be no filthiness and silly talk, of course, jesting, but rather give giving of thanks. Giving of thanks, being a thankful person, promotes health in your soul and changes your mindset and your heart by the kind of language you want to use. So I have one lesson, and I, I could give you many little lessons, like you know, well, you know, swearing depending on the culture, the, the, the you know, the listener, and so on and forth. But I thought this is uh, let me define swearing for you in in one sentence. Okay, this is what swearing is according to the scriptures. Swearing defined: knowingly using inconsiderate and offensive words with no regard for the listener. That's what swearing is: knowingly using inconsiderate and offensive words with no regard for the listener. And again, if you choose to never use these kind of phrases, even like the, oh my gosh stuff in front of certain people, you will never be an offense because you're caring about the other. Isn't that the gospel? The whole gospel is what? About loving God and loving your neighbor. If you choose to not treat God's name in an empty way, you love him. And if you choose not to be an offense to someone, you're loving your other person. I mean, ultimately, this is how you describe love in terms of how you use your language. It's brilliant. It's really funny. Um, I was thinking about my own life and uh, what did like fruit of repentance look like in my own life? And I was um, going through and like the history of my last like 15 years. You know, the first thing that changed when I became a Christian, the first thing was my mouth. I'm not saying this in a conceited way or an arrogant way. It's purely by the work of God in my life. I can count on two hands in 15 years how many times I've sworn. 15. And I don't think once I've used the name of the Lord in vain. Maybe 10 times. He, here's the guy that would be in an unbelieving context and was told to shut up because it's too inappropriate to absolutely cleaned up because the difference that God made in my life was to clean up my language. 
Amazing. And now what's cool about that? Dick Lucas, who's been a pastor for 60 years in Britain, when he said this in one of his sermons. Like he's all the way in London, and I'm listening to this, and he says, he says this, you know my experience with people? He says, usually the first thing that cleans up in a Christian's life when they become a Christian is their language, their mouth. That's his, that's his interpretation of after pastoring for 60 years. He says, the first thing I notice when people get saved is their mouth changes. He noticed that. And I was like, that's me. That was me. And it was just really cool to know that I would fall in the category of his experience as a pastor. Let's, live, let's finish with that beautiful verse. Turn with me to Psalm 141. Psalm 141. Psalm 141, verse 1. And we'll end at verse 3. When I hear the last page turning, I'll start talking. <laughs> okay. Getting close, getting close. Alright, Psalm 141, verse 1. O Lord, this is David speaking. I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting up of my hands is the evening offering. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. David recognizes in his prayer. He's like, Lord, just watch over my mouth and be and, and guard over my lips. Right? It's a beautiful uh, verse of him recognizing that um, what he says is a reflection of his relationship with God. And he wants God's help in the things that he says and when he says them and who he chooses to say them to.